0: Dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends.
1: Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm riding solo again this week because Kayleen is still on vacation. I sure hope she and the kiddos are enjoying a lot of really great time with the family and the dogs and everybody back at the ranch. But before Kayleen left, we had a good talk about her cover story this week, Decades Past Give Insight into the Future. In it, Kayleen took a good look at the stories and highlights of the past 70 years of High Plains Journal publication here on the Plains, and we talk about those and more. Now elsewhere in this issue, we have web editor Shauna Rumbaugh offering us a review of the stories that topped readers' lists in 2019. On page 8 and 9, field editor Lacey Newland writes about the recent hemp conversations at the Amarillo Farm Show, which is brought to growers by the Texas Hemp Growers Association. Hemp fiber production may be a viable opportunity in dryland in West Texas, say some researchers. You can catch up with those stories, commentary, and more online anytime at www.hpj.com. And if you're in the area, you might have a chance to listen to our friends on KFRM Radio, Monday, January 6th at 2.30 p.m. for an interview I did with Duane Tays, for his show, On the Front Porch. Thanks for the invite, Dwayne. Now, before I leave you all to dose up with some cold medication and take a long-deserved nap, we wanna remind you that if you have a comment or a thought, go ahead and drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or you can always call us here at the office at 1-800-452-7171. And do us a favor and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts And go ahead and leave us a review. Thanks, guys. It's the season for everybody getting their colds. So if you're home with sick kids or you're sick yourself, thanks for riding along with us here on HPJ Talk. issue kayleen brings us a story decades past give insight into the future this one is pretty much a a really fun story kayleen because you um and i back in 2014 it, 2014 we we worked together with the rest of the staff on our 65th anniversary and we started seeing some really cool stories and things from the last 70 some odd years of high plains journal and you since we're going into 2020 You brought it around today of where have we been in the last seven decades of agriculture out here in western Kansas and and the High Plains. Talk to us about how did this idea really, how did you form this idea, and uh, what did you want to convey with, with this story to our readers?
0: Well, actually, David suggested a story kind of looking back on the different decades, and so that prompted me to pull out our 65th anniversary issue and look and see what we had done in there and what what we had talked about. And for Jenny and I, we went down to the Kansas Heritage Center. I was kind of cool to be able to go through the microfilm and look and see what they were putting in the paper all those years ago. And, you know, seeing some of the stuff that I remember as a kid mm-hmm. looking at the journal, when I looked back at that old issue, I got to thinking, you know, what were they writing about? Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we should include some of the the stories, you know, the headline and some quotes and who they were talking to. And Who actually wrote the story back in 1950 or whatever (laughs) and so I got to digging through the the microfilm at the Heritage Center and found a couple stories from each decade and you know and hopefully we can use some of the artwork for that and I actually went up in the attic and and dug around and found some old art and it was kind of cool to to see where where we've come from.
1: A lot of people don't understand that High Plains Journal itself began in 47...
0: No, January. 40, the first edition was printed January 6, 1949.
1: 49. I don't know why I have 47 in my <laughs> brain. So not a lot of people understand that High Plains Journal started in 49, but before that, it had a whole life of its own way back to the times of the Cowboys. Yeah.
0: 1883, it started some former fashion. There was the Dodge City Democrat... The Journal Democrat and the Dodd City, Kansas Journal, and it slowly tradi- or transitioned from those public daily publications, I, I assume they were mm-hmm. daily, to a weekly ag publication. And even the first issue of the of 1949 had a baby on the cover because <laughs> it was still kind of a, a local paper.
1: It really, it really had a local fl- uh, feel to it. You know, back then, the only agricultural magazines came out of the Mm I-States. There really wasn't anything that targeted farmers and ranchers in western Kansas. And let's just say farming's different out here. It's always had its challenges and its ups and downs. What You saw in 1950 in the news, you found a, a front page story that announced plans for expansion of a sorghum plant at Dodge City. Talk to us about that. Um, What were they thinking in 1950 about that?
0: Well, they obviously recognized the um, need for a plant like this, need to process this grain that was coming out of the area. And at the time, they used sorghum for adhesives. They used the grit for dog food. Um, Brewers used uh, flake grits. There was tapioca substitutes. And it was a modified flour. They used it in other various uh, food products. I don't know if they knew it back then, but sorghum is a gluten-free product. Naturally, it doesn't have it, and there's a lot of sorghum flours and different products that they make out of sorghum now. So.
1: Isn't it interesting what was new becomes old becomes new again?
0: Yeah, and this was 1950, so, I mean, and that was, was neat.
1: That was post-war, so everybody was trying to figure out new and different ways of using things. We had that agricultural boom, it felt like, in the 50s of... New, new products and, and new technologies on the farm. I love that um, you also touched on the classified ads, and one thing close to our family's hearts are Oliver tractors. And a new 1950 Oliver combine with head and steering was $2,995, $3,000. What do you want to guess? That's not even going to get you a sickle section. <laughs> yeah of a combine <laughs> header today um, a brand new Oliver 900 model was $4,400 you know it, it fascinates me that um, High Plains Journal has been set so tied to High Plains agriculture over the years especially in the boom times mm-hmm. and well from the post war era to till, till today you go anywhere and if they see the horse and rider they know That's High Plains Journal. You guys have always been talking about the latest and greatest things. So along the way, High Plains Journal has always been talking about how you can do things more efficiently, how you can use the technologies of the day um, to really transform your farm. You found a story uh, in the 1950s about a farmer that wanted to stay modern, right?
0: Yeah, this was actually February 11th, 1960. Um, The headline was Rush Farmer Believes in Staying Modern by Lou Hauser. And it talks about, if a crop or kind of livestock business stops making money, shift to some other type of farming that will pay. This is one of the main rules followed by Edward O'Borney and Son who farm 560 acres near Bison in Rush County, Kansas. In addition, they believe in keeping right up to date on the latest developments in agriculture research and putting the best, most modern machines and methods to work where they do the most good.
1: I wonder what he thought modern machines were. I don't know. (laughs) It looks like it's a John Deere tractor, old-style John Deere tractor or so.
0: Yeah, the cut line says that he thinks enough of his equipment and crops to build this $14,000 oil metal building to provide plenty of storage space. Note the 20-foot door is set up on one side of the end. This allows the alley to extend along the side of the building instead of down the center, which results in easier access to the building spaces and movement throughout the building.
1: You know, even back then, I bet you that building is still standing today and somebody's still using it in some form or another um, for an agricultural purposes, or they've just figured out how to, uh, to build on that modern modern type of thing. It's, it's something that we still talk about yeah. as we're putting together the, the programs for all of our U events what are you going to do to go home and to use the tools at hand Mm -hmm. the best you can to to bring home fiscal stability for your farming operation
0: yeah and that same issue there was a picture of a hodgman county farmer he was named the 1959 champion of irrigated hybrid sorghums which 1959 I, i wouldn't think irrigated yeah sorghum i mean
1: well, but th- back then they were they were throwing everything at research-wise because nobody had been doing extensive yeah. research and things. I loved how in 1960 in your story you talk about, uh, again, Lou Hauser interviewed a Jetmore, Kansas FFA member who planned to stay on the farm. And I love this quote that you pulled out of there. Um, Norman Banberger, 16, a junior in vocational agriculture at Hodgman County Community High School in Jetmore, He said, every day, young people are leaving the farm to seek greener pastures in the cities. But here's a young man who has definite plans to stay with the land for his living. You know, we talk about that today. In fact, two weeks ago, not two weeks ago, we had a story from Shauna about brain gain. Yes. And how we are trying to reverse the the flight to the city. They were talking about it back then, too.
0: Yep, And I... You know, there's, there's something that's got to be enticing for the kids to stay on the farm and it just can't be a love for agriculture because the kids have to become responsible adults and be productive members of society. And
1: Well, they have to provide for a family yes. and children and housing costs and family living expenses. Mm-hmm. And those do not go down. No. <laughs> I mean, no matter, I mean... You may not have a crop, but you're still going to have to pay some sort of insurance, and you're still going to have to feed the kids and clothe the kids, and, and you've still got expend- expenses. So, man, over the years, we've had a long, long, long history with the winter livestock folks. Um, it's just, it's always been around um, as far as part of the paper. Uh, it used to be the McKinley Winter Livestock Commission Company in in Um, they've always had an ad in High Plains Journal
0: I remember it being called McKinley winter when I was a kid yep that's all I ever knew it was
1: (laughs) (laughs) but you looked at the ads and um, what were some some things that you saw or some trends that you saw as far as the kind of cattle that were being sold or the prices for cattle that were being sold
0: well I mean They they seem still seem like they have a large sale like Mm -hmm. in this ad from the February eighteenth nineteen sixty edition they sold thirty five hundred head of cattle that week
1: so I mean still selling that amount it's pretty
0: comparable but I mean I don't know how to compare the prices because this was like twenty four bucks so I don't know if that is a hundred weight
1: or how they imagine that's probably a hundred weight I would guess so. Love how uh, we had a, a front page story in 1960 on Stockman Mark's quarter century of service about the first 25 years of that sale institution.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was kind of neat. And the picture is kind of cool. And Jenny and I got to talking about the how they took the photo because you can see the elevator in the picture. So there's no way they're on top of the elevator to take the picture. And the guy that Joe Berkeley is mm-hmm. that's credited with uh, starting the journal, he flew an airplane. So we're guessing we don't know, but... guessing the photographer shot it out of the airplane window (laughs)
1: um mr berkeley had he was very creative in in covering the news and it's interesting because over the years you can start to see high plains journal turning from a rural type of hey this is what's going on in the 4-h clubs this is what's going on in in the local local area here in southwest kansas and it bloomed and blossomed to covering the 12 states that we cover Mm -hmm. today so as it grew, the, the local coverage kind of fell by the wayside because that could be picked up by other papers. But we still stuck to the traditional mission of agriculture, agriculture, agriculture. And um, I just find that funny or interesting because today we're starting to, to kind of go back around to that ag-adjacent story. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on? What's important to somebody that lives in rural America? Yeah, the price of corn is very important to them. But whether they know it or not, but you may have somebody that's looking for rural health care or uh, rural schools or rural issues that don't directly relate to planting a seed or or taking care of crops and livestock. I just thought, I I think that's interesting. So let's look at the 70s here. Um, What were some things that you noticed, trends in the 70s in your research that kind of popped out at you?
0: You know, there was the typical economy stories there was you know stories about the national western and there was a lot of stories about the cost to you know produce cattle or produce a crop and one of the cover stories i found was from january 26 1970 greg schartz and his sons they were they're farming in greg county which is the county that's west of ford county um Mm -hmm. near simron and they were trying to find out the best way to irrigate for their their operation, and
1: now they were transitioning about that time from flood irrigation to sprinkler irrigation in yeah, several areas, right? Yeah.
0: The picture that of that was on the cover. They had a antiquated looking sprinkler. <laughs> I mean, it's the wheel looks similar to what you would see on one, but it's it's kind of a different looking machine. And he tells about how. He tried winter irrigation in 1967, but felt it didn't pay. And he thinks that the sprinkler irrigation is best on the sandy soil, which west of here, near the Arkansas River, it's pretty sandy where the Shartses farm. So,
1: I wonder what those people back then, if we could, sh- if we could push them into the future, into 2020, and show them the irrigation technologies we have today, like the dragon line mm-hmm. and how we have variable rate applications yeah. and, and the technologies today. I just wonder if they ever imagined that <laughs> back then.
0: I don't know. It might blow their minds. You know, the the infrared maps that they can produce, those things kind of show you where where stuff's not working, and they just they blow my mind.
1: Well, you know, I look back at my dad who, you know, started farming with his dad in the late 50s, early 60s, farmed through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Back then, the, the research guys at, at K-State Research and Extension and the Extension Service, those research projects were very rudimentary, mm-hmm. really. It was just trying to quantify what are good seeding rates and, and tell them what are good seeding rates for this ground. Mm-hmm. Things like how much water should you apply and how you should apply it and how to to get the most healthy calves to the sale barn. I mean, they weren't even thinking about Back then, branding was a big technology, (laughs) (laughs) but then we started seeing animal health and, and that sort of thing. So that brings us up to the 80s, and of course, the 80s were a really tough time for everybody. What did High Plains Journal have to say in the 1980s for the farmer and rancher readers?
0: You know, there was stories that using those different technologies where If they implement it the right way, it could start to pay off. And, you know, things like reducing your feed costs. And like this one in December of 1980, dairy runs on a good feed supply. And we all know a dairy, they have to have the best feed and forages to um, feed those, those cows to produce the best milk. And this story was by Bob Keating, and he interviewed Floyd Benton. And in this story, uh, Floyd Benton says he almost got out of the dairy business three years ago. He kept a third of his herd, and he now feels it's one of the wisest decisions he ever made in over 30 years of farming.
1: Wow! You know we are doing those same stories today. I mean, it's not been it. We've we've seen decreasing prices in the last six years, mm-hmm. and we had record record highs in 2012 and 13. That that nobody ever would have imagined that they would ever see. And we're coming back to the equilibrium of this is kind of the normal is is these prices. You know, it seems like they're really, really low, but it's kind of the normal. Yeah. But no matter what the decade, as long as you're the low cost to produce, because you have to take whatever price you get, you are going to make it in the end. It amazes me that we're still... Trying to remind producers that, hey, as long as you're mindful of your costs and your inputs and you can quantify everything that goes into that, that business, you're going to come out okay in the end.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I found another story in January of 1980. Uh, one of the headlines, embargo effect could result in $7 billion trade loss. Yep. And on the very next page is door of trade is open between China and U.S., <laughs> <laughs> and yesterday they signed, or not yesterday, but they signed part uh, of the... We
1: didn't sign it. It got passed. Passed. That's what I meant. It got passed through the House. It's been passed by the Senate and the House, and so now it should go on to President Trump's desk. Uh, USMCA should be signed by President Trump here shortly. That trade thing is, a. it started being a key and critical component of agricultural um, production production as part of creating markets back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, The precursor to U.S. Wheat Associates, for example, they started going to Japan and um, China and places like that to make sure that there were markets, to open up markets for production because we know, um, historically, farmers in the United States will outproduce anybody else. We've got tremendous land assets. We've Mm -hmm. got tremendous resources. And we've got really, really smart people that can improve the output that we have. Our yields continue to rise and rise and rise. But you gotta have some place to go with them. Domestically we can't eat all of that. No. And they realized that back in the, you know, fifties, sixties and seventies and yeah. started opening up markets. That is what led to other industries like the car industry and computers and that sort of thing. That's how trade kinda opened. Mm-hmm. Ag was your foot in the door. Yeah. Or at least that's how it was told to me.
0: <laughs> well, and, you know, the checkoff started in the 80s. And they, there was a speaker I listened to recently that said, you know, beef producers back in the 80s were giving consumers what they had. They weren't giving consumers what they wanted. And I think, you was know... A take it or leave it. Take it or leave it is the way he explained it. And I have to agree with him because now... Producers are opening their eyes and opening their ears. There's grass-fed beef. There's all kinds of niche markets that these producers are getting into that will help save the farm Mm -hmm. in some instances.
1: You kind of have to decide. Each farmer has to decide for themselves. Am I going to just produce and sell it as a commodity with all the other commodities? Or am I going to market myself and my production as something special? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up on a seed stock operation. My dad and my granddad, they raised cattle for other producers. So we sold bulls, uh, we sold heifers and uh, replacement heifers and that sort of thing to other farmers that were building their herds or other ranchers that were building their herds. That was their niche market. A lot of people don't understand that once the the cornflakes that you get on the, the shelf at Dillon's come from All over the United States. (laughs) You know, yellow dent number two corn looks like yellow dent number two corn looks like, (laughs) oh, imagine that yellow dent number two corn. (laughs) Unless you differentiate yourself in some markets, you take what the commodity markets give you and and you make a living off of that. If you're a farmer that has some options, you look at differentiating Mm -hmm. yourself. For example, uh, talking to somebody the other day, a grower who decided to cut his costs by exp- he was expanding, but part of that was he realized how much money he was spending on fertilizer and seed input costs. Mm-hmm. And this is today, and so he looked at all that. And he said, "Well, that's ridiculous. I'm paying retail for that. Why don't I just get my my license and become a input dealer and have a commercial input license? You know." Yeah. And he created that on his farm. He created opportunity because he realized, well, that's where I can cut the costs. Mm -hmm. But market access has always been critical to American agriculture. It doesn't matter if it's the USMCA in 2019 or if it's visiting China for the first time in 1970. (laughs) I want to go back to 1970 and 80, though. I I see in here 13,000 people were at the National Farmers Organization National Meet. And I have to say, my parents were at that meet. My sister and brother, <laughs> or my sister was there. My parents were members of the National Farmers Organization way back when, when they were young. They were a young couple, and cool. um, not a lot of people understand. But NFO, as my dad tried to explain it to me, he was he said it it was it was a way of farmers to try to organize, kind of like labor was organizing, mm-hmm. and say, you know what, you need to pay the farmer more for their their um, product, and you need to, to respect the farmer and their decisions. And But you see that kind of in today's farmers on Twitter. I don't know if you watch Ag Twitter at all, Kayleen. We've, we've talked about this before, <laughs> but I lurk on Ag Twitter a lot. You see farmers that want to be thanked, and, and you see them talking about ways that they can get more value for, for their production, because they are carrying all of the the risk, Mother Nature doesn't smile on them, mm-hmm. they're out, big time. I, I just find it fascinating that yesterday's NFO members are today's Ag Twitter people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of neat.
1: Yeah. Well, now, what else did you, did you see in the 1980s? Oh, Chicago tr- Board of Trade added cotton trading.
0: Huh. Yeah. It was kind of neat to just go through and look at the headlines, uh, some of the headlines from... The stories that I pulled in 1960, uh, ground sprayers used for sagebrush range, uh, indemnity promised by ASCII for sales, doors open between China and the U.S., NOG takes action to protect wheat prices, predicted recession fails to materialize in Kansas. Just
1: in Kansas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm assuming that's because of agriculture?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, agriculture has always been one of those things, as long as you can, as long as you've got um, farming in your portfolio, you should be safe because people have to eat. Yes, everybody has, <laughs> everybody to, has eat. to eat. Well, now let's look at the 1990s. This is getting into more of our more recent memory, um, maybe less recent for some of our millennial listeners. But um, what were the big things in the 90s? And what's fascinating to me is back then I should have been a more active reader of the High Plains Journal and paying attention, but I was in high school and college and it just, you know, that sort of thing didn't really stick in my mind so much. So what were the, the stories of the 90s that stuck out to readers of High Plains Journal?
0: Well, some of the issues I pulled in 1990, some of the headlines, um, there was one talking about the Nog Convention. Uh, far- soybean farmers are seeking EC action regarding subsidies. Biodegradable plastic is not a menace. Food prices are not high, farm spokesman insists. Meat production matches uh, 1988 level. Soybeans have an identity problem. Wheat standard remarks sought. Wheat value, wheat market value is high despite low market share. Um, a lot of those things yeah. just v- buried throughout the decade.
1: It fascinates me because in the 90s were the releases of the first biotech soybeans, and mm-hmm. the first biotech crops. Um, We had BT corn that came out and was a tremendous game changer. You have to think, the biggest part of producing agriculture is competing with weeds and pests for the crop that you're trying to grow. Anybody that's ever had a garden and had to battle squash bugs or something stupid that's eaten their crops, (laughs) magnify that 3,000 to 5 million times, okay? And that's what a farmer has to deal with in order to get any crop to take to town. And so when technology, like a Bt trait that was inside the the corn itself, when that came about, instead of spraying Bt on top of the corn to take care of the pest problem, you could grow the corn with that Bt in it already and everybody was okay. Yeah, It was a game changer. When Roundup came on the market, I remember going to some of the, the conferences and seeing, you know, round up this and round up that and round up, round up, round up, And I just, I asked my dad, it's just another weed killer, right? He's like, well, no, not so much, honey. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until I was much older that I realized the ability to spray over the top of your crop that was actually growing in the field and kill targeted weeds, mm-hmm. that was a game changer Instead of farmers and ranchers like my dad, it used to be when I was a kid, I didn't see my dad that much in the summertime because he was always in the field doing some mm-hmm. field activity or another.
0: Going back and forth, as my mom would say. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there was cultivating. There was, um, you know, you're going through. In some parts of the world, hand hoe crews were mm-hmm. a big thing. And I remember
0: rogue crews, rogue crews that would come through and get the weeds out of the Milo fields. Yeah. around here when I was a kid, or we would have to go out there. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: And let me tell you, that's hard, hard work, and it's back-breaking work. Yeah. There's a reason why old farmers in the 70s look like old farmers, yeah. and they may have been 30 years old. I mean, it agriculture used to wear on a body. Mm-hmm. Now, with the technologies we have, my friends get to take vacations with their families, I've got friends in farming that I actually watch their children's ball games in the summertime and they never saw their dad from sunup to sundown <laughs> when they themselves were farm yep. kids. That's what those technologies did. They changed the fabric of the farming family and and gave us some time to to be family members. So that's the nineties. The two thousands are a little bit more recent and a little bit more memorable.
0: Yeah, there was a story that I found from 2000, which was kind of a task because the the uh, Heritage Center didn't have the microfilm for that, that yeah. decade. And I found some old archived CDs that I couldn't open on my computer, but somebody else managed to open them. And then there was a question of where the actual hard copies were around the building. so. Fourteen different texts later, we we found found them.
1: You know, that's always a sinking pit in the stomach is, oh, what do you mean we lost a decade? We found them. We found them. Thank you.
0: And one of the issues that I found was from June 5th of 2000. It was a story about, or it was a story by Holly Martin. She wrote the cover story about a California dairyman who had relocated to Oklahoma Uh, In her story, Good Situation Draws Dairyman to Oklahoma, she spoke with Brad Macchiato about why he he and his family made the change from California to Tillman County, Oklahoma.
1: Wow. It was something to see big dairies. Yeah. You saw them in California, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Idaho, big, big, big dairies. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... It was easier to, it's easier in a dairy to have larger number of cows and and that way you can plan on always having some milk. Yeah. You know, there's always milk coming in. Yeah.
0: Well, and this, uh, Brad had told Holly that there was 300,000 cows in his county in California. There was 90,000 cows in the whole state of Oklahoma in the dairy industry (laughs) at that time in 2000.
1: And those were smaller dairies, um, probably herds of, what, less than a 1,000?
0: I would guess so, yeah. yeah. He was hoping to take advantage of higher milk prices and lower feed costs, and in turn he was able to help the local community that he had moved to. I mean, he was buying his products there. He was using the implement dealers for the parts stores, the hardware stores, the lumber store, even the local grocery store benefited Mm -hmm. from them bringing their dairy to that county and the employees that came to the dairy.
1: You know, one of the things that I discovered when I first started working at the Journal in the 2000s and we started seeing these dairies come in, a lot of it was they were just getting so pushed out by the cities around them, you know, taking up their land. So you saw these cities growing and growing and growing and growing and expanding in California and places like that because people want to move there. It's lovely weather, et cetera, et cetera. But then as the cities grew out, You've, you've got people that are not familiar with the smells or not familiar with production mm-hmm. and animal husbandry techniques. And, and it's scary and, it's, <laughs> and you get these misconceptions and all of a sudden you start having people make rules that have unintended consequences about mm-hmm. the environment and, and this, that, and the other. And these farmers looked up and said, well, there's nothing that says we have to stay here. So we're just going to pack the cows, and we're going to move to some place that's more friendly. Yeah, states like Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, Colorado, those states became more friendly to larger dairies because mm-hmm. and larger animal operations because they saw the value in the jobs and the the growth in their communities. Yep. You know, my dad always said, "Don't don't bite the hand that feeds you."
0: <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, my son made the comment on the way to town the other day. I mean, we live north of Dodge City. Dodge City is, what, 30,000 people maybe. And there's a lot of people that are far removed from the farm. And he had a kid make a comment to him in class that, well, he thinks all the, all pigs are pink. I'm like, you know, that's probably all he's ever seen. He's probably never seen a Duroc like what you had for 4-H or a Hamp like you had for 4-H. So I told him, I was like, just... Let him think what he wants to think, but tell him, you know, there are other colors and so maybe it takes a nine year eight year old, almost nine year old to (laughs) (laughs) get the story out there sometimes.
1: (laughs) You know, it we have to make that connection to our our city neighbors. I've heard the phrase city it's on on Ag Twitter. I don't like that phrase. I don't either. And here here's why. Logically, it makes zero sense. These are the people that are going to be consuming our products. Yes. These are also the people that have more voting power than 2% of us that are on the land producing yes. the, ag- the agricultural products. So you need to make them your allies. Part of why we do this broadcast or this podcast is to try to explain what we see out here in agriculture. And that's why we ask for comments and questions and things. You know, if something you hear kind of sparks a question in you, Send us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com. We'd love to chat with you and try to to help you understand what we're doing out here. And if we don't have the answers, <laughs> we know the people that do have the answers. It's kind of what our job is. Yeah. <laughs> I always like to say people aren't ignorant unless they choose not to ask a question. You know? Mm-hmm. If they choose not to, to ask a question about something, that's one thing that... That's just not an excuse. If you don't just assume, ask, and we yes. will we will find the answers for you. I think you saw in the two thousands a rise in that in that changeover in that attitude of the farmer was always that trusted person of, you know, they're just down the road and it's mom and pop and you know, of course they're doing good things. They're good, hardworking, hard scrabble people. Mm-hmm. It was about the two thousands that people started distrusting farmers, for yeah. lack of a better phrase. The bigger
0: farmers started getting bigger and the little guys got kind of squished out and my dad quit farming in 2003. So that's kind of the same feeling I had about agriculture at that time, that the big guys are just gonna to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And to some degree that's happened, but I think you know, there's still the little guys out there that are trying to do what they're doing and improve the, the industry.
1: I think what you saw is the bigger guys were going, like we said, they're going back towards the commodity production. Yeah. Whereas the smaller guys are looking at making their market, um, their name is in their market, mm-hmm. their niche. So there's room for everybody at the table. Yes. And you also started seeing infighting amongst agriculture big and bad in the 2000s. Um, you know, whether it was the livestock guys against the crop guys or the crop guys against this and that and the other. Rah, rah, rah. At some point in the last couple of years or so, there has been a real movement, though, in agriculture to put aside the crop differences and start working together because you realize less than 2% of the U.S. population actually is on the farm. Back in the 20s and the 30s, it was over 60 to 70% yeah. were on the farm. And you had big, giant voting blocks that could protect your your interests in farming, whether that was in the environmental rules and regulations or tax reg- rules and regulations. 2000s were when it kind of started changing. <laughs> uh, what else did you find in the, in the 2010s here lately? Oh, I noticed.
0: You had an atrazine story. <laughs> atrazine.
1: Yeah, atrazine was kind of fun because, um, you know, people started... Atrazine has been around since 1958. A use, it is a useful, useful product.
0: Mm-hmm. They were then. trying to change the regulations back mm-hmm. then and how people, how farmers used it.
1: To an extent, it still comes up yeah. time and time again. Um, it's one of those boogeymans that um, the EPA and, and environmental groups keep coming after time and time again. What do you think, after looking at all of this and knowing what you know, what do you think 2020 and the 2020s are going to hold for agriculture. What do you see? What do you what do you hope?
0: I hope production agriculture gets to continue. I mean, I hope that legislators and different interest groups don't try to squash us out. We are here to provide a safe and sustainable product for everybody. I mean, you have to eat. You have to have clothing, you have to have food. I mean, It's the simple things that you have to have to survive.
1: Every dollar that circulates started in the ground. Every single dollar. You think about it. It doesn't matter if it's a crop or a cow going to market or oil and gas. Every single dollar that circulates gets its start from the ground. Because the farmer takes that, that product and sells it and uses that money in the community. And that community uses that money in that community and, mm-hmm. and beyond. So America has these huge resources, this huge, vast, natural resource of land that we take for granted. Oh, yeah. I've been in some parts where people don't even have yards. I have places where they don't, they don't have room for yards. It is literally a house on top of a house on top of a house. And... We take it for granted that you can drive for 45 minutes and see three houses. Yeah. And there's production on all of that land.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas people would kill for a garden plot in some countries. Yep. That is our strength. Agriculture is our strength of the United States. If I, I'm like you, I would, if I had a, a crystal ball, I'd like to see agriculture coming back and swinging the pendulum back to reconnecting with the consumer listening to the consumer, maybe trying to communicate with the consumer about what exactly are we doing out here. And those people are four generations now removed from the farm. There hasn't been a farmer in their family since the 1970s (laughs) (laughs) or the 1960s or the 80s. So I think what I hope for the future of of agriculture in the High Plains is we continue to use the resources at at our disposal and we continue to look towards um, the new technologies, the new education, the new crops that are coming out, and, and and making it go in our high plains. We didn't talk about the big crops in in the original part of the High Plains Journal or the original timeline. It was yeah, sugar beets and <laughs> wheat and wheat, sugar beets and wheat and potatoes. Yeah, were huge, huge in western Kansas. Now with the rise of of more feedlots, we had the rise of more corn, which brought us more irrigation. Uh, wheat has always been there in some shape or form. It mm-hmm. used to be, we were the bread basket for the world, and now wheat is more, is it's still a food crop, but it's more used as a rotation yep. device to give the land a little bit of break between corn crops, this, that, and the other. Um, so things are always changing, but we're seeing things like canola, cotton being produced in kansas uh we're seeing more sesame and guar and
0: industrial hemp (laughs) industrial hemp
1: there's always room for change it's always evolving and that's what i that's what i love about this industry that's what i love about writing for high plains journal
0: yeah and it was really neat looking back in all these decades and seeing how stuff that was new and fantastic back then is new and can be new and fantastic today too I mean, it all comes around. It seems like it's a big circle of production mm-hmm. for agriculture.
1: Well, I'm just so tickled that you went to the time and the trouble to look everything up. I myself am going to be looking for this story in the issue of High Plains Journal and the in the December 30th issue of High Plains Journal.
0: Yep. Last issue of the
1: year. Last issue of the year. Last issue of the 2010s. Yeah. It's going to be 2020.
0: I was talking with my son the other day and... He was asking about 1990 or something. I don't remember what it was about. Ancient history. Yeah. (laughs) And I made the comment, I was like, when I was your age, when I was eight, 2020 seemed like a long time away. (laughs) It did. And he's never experienced a year that started with 19.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here is hoping that 2020 and the 2020s are just are good for agriculture and good for listeners of HPJ Talk. Thanks for um, for sharing this with us, Kayleen. And like I said, you can see that online anytime at
0: www.hpj.com.
1: Your Dodge City Pride Ag Resources markets as of December 23rd. Corn was down at $3.74, wheat was down at $4.11, milo was down at $3.24, and soybeans were up at $8.24. Be sure to watch for next week's issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes January 6th with a story on cattle genetics from our copy editor, Jennifer Thuer. And you can always look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJTalk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman Wyatt Earp once said, fast is fine, but accuracy, it's everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal. All rights reserved.
0: Dirt Road in a gooseneck. Sad love with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. headlights on both ends of my day. This country life is for me.